It's a crazy world out there, and this is the place to help you figure out how to live in it. Welcome to the Masculinist Podcast, the show about how we live as Christian men and as the church in today's radically new and challenging world. I'm your host, Aaron Wren. Thank you for listening. Please visit our website and sign up for our newsletter today at themasculinist.org. You can also support the work of The Masculinist on Patreon at patreon.com slash masculinist, on Gumroad at gumroad.com slash masculinist, or on PayPal at paypal.me slash masculinist. And now for today's show. Hello, this is Aaron. Today I want to start a new uh, topic um, I don't know that it'll per se be a series. Uh, there might do a couple to start, but uh, just a recurring theme that we're going to talk about in, in the podcast, which is why conservatives are such losers. One of the things that I wrote a masculinist about, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, is that conservatives have a mentality of essentially withdraw and restart. So when a church, for example, that you are part of, uh, starts going uh, starts going sideways from your perspective, then the conservative inclination is to essentially leave and start a new church, leave and start a new institution. So uh, the the uh, in the kind of the voice and exit model of uh, A.O. Hirschman, they're they're very much into the exit. We will leave and try to start a new institution, uh, and so conservatives have tended to dramatically undervalue institutions. They tend to be focused on mission. They tend to be focused on correct theology, and they have really not been focused on institutions. The end result being that they tend to lose control of their institutions, and they start new ones that they think are going to be the institutions that they want, but then those rapidly uh, or over time um, run into many of the same problems as, as their original one. It's just like us as, as people. You know, we think that, oh, this relationship is bad, so I'll leave this relationship and I'll find a better relationship. But in fact, the, you know, the common uh, thread in most of our relationship issues, uh, you know, is us, right? So if we, if we just run away from our problems and we never face the problems, then we find a, a situation where, um, you know, we're just going to keep having the same thing occur again and again. And so today I want to talk about an example of this in the proposed split of the United Methodist Church. Now, I am not a Methodist, and I am not going to consider myself an expert on Methodism, but I, I read the split agreements and uh, found there was some very disturbing stuff in there from the conservative perspective. And so I think we should look at this as a case study. Um, again, I'm not a partisan in this fight. Even if you are a, a more progressive person yourself, um, you know, you might find it interesting to listen to this and, and think about it. So the Methodist Church uh, is organized as essentially a global denomination, the United Methodist Church. So the heartland is the United States, but there are a lot of missionary churches and stuff overseas. So there are a lot of African United Methodists, for example. There's some in Asia. And um, and they come together every year at a general conference, and they vote on you know different proposals for their denomination. So like a lot of denominations, they've been going through a process of trying to decide whether essentially to affirm uh, of gay marriage and to allow gay clergy. That is currently prohibited by the Book of Discipline in the church. So the church officially does not allow gay marriages to be performed there and officially does not allow 
gay clergy. A number of the more progressive churches have been doing this anyway, uh, and to date there has not really been much in the way of discipline taken against them, but it's been a point of contention. And so uh, I can't remember the exact year, maybe in 2018, there was a general conference uh, where there was going to be a vote on what to do um, about these provisions around gay marriage and, and gay uh, um, ministers. And it was like widely assumed that, um, you know, the kind of progressive faction, the pro-LGBT faction, was going to win that uh, that fight, and they were going to vote to, uh, you know, essentially affirm that. Well, what ended up happening is that they lost, and that instead there was a vote to affirm the traditional understandings of marriage and clergy in the church, largely uh, supposedly driven by overseas congregations in places like Africa and Asia, where the societies are much more culturally conservative than the United States. So I think the first background thing to understand is that when they took the vote, the progressive faction lost, right? The, the, the progressive faction lost. And so the, the conservatives, obviously, I think were very uh, pleased with this, but I think they saw that that the direction the church was heading was going to be in a progressive direction and that probably it was only going to be a matter of time um, before they, you know, before the church actually did vote to to adopt more progressive stances on LGBT issues. And so um, they started making plans to head for the exits. And so there was some plans developed about how do we deal with this? Maybe the best thing to do is for us to just split kind of the progressives can go their direction and the conservatives can go their direction. And uh, so so that's what they've been talking about for quite some time. And a number of um, proposals were developed in this regard. But what I find very interesting is that every single proposal I saw put on the table, in every single one of them, it is the conservative churches that would leave the United Methodist Church denomination in order to start a new denomination. So even though there had been a majority conservative traditionalist vote in the last one, it was the conservatives who were going to leave, and the remaining uh, United Methodist Church would become kind of an officially progressive uh, or, you know, what they might call centrist. Some of them call it a centrist denomination where it's not mandatory. It would not be mandatory to to do for church to have gay clergy or do gay gay gay, gay weddings, but um, but but you know it would be allowed. Um, others want to be truly progressive, or it's essentially required. But nevertheless, essentially the conservatives were going to leave. So right away you win the vote, and then the first thing you say is, "I want to leave," and so they have essentially resigned themselves to handing the entire denominational infrastructure, history, brand, everything to the liberal factions, and they're going to start over from scratch. Basically, all that they would depart with, for the most part, is their church property. There would be something else. We'll talk about the specifics in a minute. Um, But it's important to understand um, that the structure of the United Methodist Church, similar to some other um, uh, Protestant denominations like the, uh, the, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, you know, has what's called a trust clause 
um, in their in their denominational rules that basically says that the local congregation holds the property in trust for the denomination. So de facto, the denomination owns all the property in the church. You know, and so if you leave, if you're a church who wants to disaffiliate from the denomination, then if you do not get permission from the denomination to depart with your property, then you are going to basically have to give up your building, give up all your assets, give up everything. And, you know, you, the people, can physically walk out the door, but everything else stays with the denomination. And this has definitely happened in, for example, the Episcopal Church. It's happened in the Presbyterian churches um, that, that basically there's been tremendous loss of property and assets as people go. And again, the jurisprudence on this varies by state. You know, it's going to vary by jurisdiction on, on exactly what happens. Um, but ultimately, right, the denominations control the property. And so um, people, conservatives who want to leave are very concerned about their property. So in all these splits, in essence, um, that have been proposed, the conservative churches would be able to leave and take their own local congregational property with them. So their buildings, et cetera, would come with them, and this trust clause would not be informed. So for them, that's the deal that's very appealing to them. If we can just get out with our building, man, we are satisfied. But I think it's telling, again, even though they essentially won the vote, it's the conservatives who are leaving, and they are going to leave the entire infrastructure of the denomination essentially in the hands of the progressive faction. And uh, so there's a tremendous amount of value, uh, I would argue, in that that infrastructure. I'm not going to really go into that part in this in this uh, this podcast. Maybe the next one I will is give you an example of that. Uh, but they're essentially willing to abandon it and completely start over. And this has been the pattern of all of these conservative breakaway denominations. They leave. Some of them get to keep their building, some of them not, and then they create a new denomination, and then a generation later, the new denomination revisits you know, many of the same problems of the old denomination. So if, if the conservative traditionalist Methodist faction creates this traditionalist Methodist church, I would predict that in the future, they're probably going to run into this exact same thing uh, again and just, and just repeat it. But beyond the fact that they're just leaving, the actual deal that the conservatives cut is from my reading of it, just a terrible deal. And to kind of illustrate how terrible it is, I want to put it in the perspective of some of the other proposals that were made. So there were a number of proposals, I'm aware of like five of them, that were made uh, for how to, you know, essentially allow the conservatives and the progressives to go their own way. Only one of them have I read in depth, and that is the so-called Indianapolis plan. So one reason to read it is because I live in Indianapolis. You know, people uh, tend to think of Indianapolis as a super conservative, you know, Bible Belt kind of place, which it is in some respects. But Indianapolis is also a big center of mainline uh, and liberal Christianity as well. So these discussions were held in Indianapolis at North United Methodist Church, which is a sort of a, you know, a local kind of progressive institution uh, of a church. The uh, the former pastor there uh, was a guy named uh, uh, Dick Hamilton, who was the brother of a uh, longtime Indiana congressman and 9-11 commission uh, co-chair, uh, Lee Hamilton. Uh, a lot of prominent people um, uh, attended. So this, this, this conference of, of some different centrists, traditionalists, and progressives was held, and they came up with a plan to 
allow for an amicable split of the church. And their plan, I thought, was an extremely fair plan. So, for example, it says all of the um, all of the overseas uh, Methodist groupings, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, are um, in the traditionalist camp by default. So, Methodist Church um, is, is sort of organized hierarchically um, into something called annual conferences. So an annual conference is essentially, you might think of it as something like a diocese or a, an ecclesiastical province. You know, a, 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 a an annual conference could cover an entire state, maybe it could cover multiple states, part of a state, but a pretty significant sized regional grouping of, um, of churches. Overseas, there are, you know, larger groupings above that called central conferences. So there's like three central conferences in um, Africa. I think there's three in Europe and there's one in the Philippines. So by default, all of these central conferences, which are located outside the United States, would be in the traditionalist camp. Okay, so it's like, hey, we know that it's the overseas people who are conservative. We're going to let them go their way and they'll be in in this camp by default. And anybody who is with underneath of that is going to have the option to, to go progressive. So if you were an annual conference underneath one of these central conferences, or you were even a congregation that wanted to affiliate with the progressive church, if you're maybe a progressive congregation in Africa, you would be allowed to do that. But by default, the overseas groupings were going to stay in the traditionalist camp. In the United States, annual conferences uh, were going to be able to take a vote of, of who to affiliate with. Uh, by default, they would stay in the uh, centrist, uh, uh, you know, existing United Methodist Church. They called it centrist, but essentially it's going to be a progressive denomination. Uh, you're in by default, but you can get out by a simple majority vote of your annual conference, or if you're unsatisfied with where your annual conference gets out, by a simple majority vote of your congregation. And by the way, you have until 2028 to kind of make your election. And if you make an election, uh, you can still actually revote uh, at a future date. You have to wait like three and a half years to revote, but if you end up being dissatisfied with where you ended up because of the way those denominations played out, you would get another bite at the apple to do it. And again, so I thought that was very fair. Um, it also said, hey, you can everybody who breaks away can still call themselves United Methodist Church. They can still use the same cross and flame logo as long as they make some kind of a modification that allows you to distinguish between them. So I thought this was a, a you know, a very fair plan uh, for that. And uh, the Indianapolis plan was not adopted, nor was any of were any of the other um, five plans or four, four or five plans that were put on the table. Instead, something was adopted called a protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation. And from my reading of this protocol, um, it is far worse for conservatives than any of the proposals uh, that I'm aware of. Again, certainly far worse than the Indianapolis plan proposal. And I didn't, again, read the details of the other ones, but the summaries that I read of them make them sound like any of these things would have been better uh, than this current protocol. So um, I mentioned in the Indianapolis plan that the you know African and overseas churches were going to end up conservative by default. That's not the case in this protocol. In this protocol, the international churches are all in 
uh, the uh, existing, that is to say, liberal congregation by default. So even the most conservative churches from Africa by default are going to end up in this new liberal, you know, United, more liberal United Methodist Church, you know, you know, if they don't take some affirmative action. At the central conference level, which is the highest grouping overseas, again, there's seven of them, the only way for a central conference to pick the traditionalist one is to get a two-thirds supermajority vote. So not only are the African churches and the, and the, and the, you know, the, the Asian churches and European churches in the liberal denomination by default, they need to vote two-thirds supermajority to get out at the highest level of organization. So that's like crazy. They're setting supermajority. So that's a, and this is going to be a recurring thing. There are supermajority thresholds that you have to cross to get out of this liberal denomination. So again, still, even, even if the central conferences stayed in, you know, the liberal by default, the annual conferences and the churches should still vote to get out. But again, they've switched, they flipped the switch that even in the very socially conservative Africa, they have to take some steps to get out. It's, it's going, they're going to be in kind of a liberal denomination with liberal policies by default. In the United States, it, it's a similar situation. These annual, again, the annual conferences, just like in the Indianapolis plan, in the approved protocol, the annual conferences are going to stay in the kind of liberal, you know, existing denomination, which will become liberal by default. Um, but to get out, it's no longer a simple majority vote, but you have to have a 57% majority in order to get out. And to me, this is a suspiciously exact figure that no one has ever um, explained why they picked this figure, as far as I know. And given that conservatives are basically constantly outmaneuvered uh, bureaucratically, my guess is that the progressives counted a lot of noses. They had their whip count. They knew that if they set this thing to 57%, it was going to trap a lot more uh, of these um, of these in the in the liberal denomination than would have been allowed by the uh, by a simple majority threshold. So again, they set a super majority threshold for you to get out. Then we go down to the church level. We go down to the church level again. Even if the annual conference decides to stay in the liberal denomination, the church can still decide to leave. However, the church votes can either be set to require a simple majority or a two-thirds supermajority as defined by the church council. And I think it's the case, as we've seen, leadership, just just like maybe in, in kind of we see with the um, kind of the Republican Party, you know, or, or, the, or you know, where the, the uh, you know, the base, the, the uh, you know, the establishment, the leadership— is much more uh, centrist or, you know, in some ways than the base. The base is much more conservative than the people they elect. And I think that's the case here. I mean, I think if you have a church where the church council or the leadership of the church is much more um, progressive than the congregation, they can essentially trap that entire congregation in the liberal denomination by electing a two-thirds supermajority to get out. So uh, so you start looking at this, multi- at every single level— 
there are supermajority thresholds to get out. And so the end result of this, if this protocol is actually approved, this whole thing kind of blew up because of COVID, still seems to be in effect. Even some of the conservative groupings are still pushing this. If conservatives agree to this and it is approved, a substantial number of very conservative churches are going to find themselves trapped in a officially liberal United Methodist Church that will then have them under their thumb permanently. I mean, that is what is going to happen because there are so many bites at the apple uh, for uh, essentially progressives to be able to trap you in that. Um, and keep in mind, the conservatives who do leave you know, are then essentially going to mean that the conservative presence is going to be significantly reduced inside the, the legacy United Methodist Church. You start looking at that and, you know, it's it's not looking good. And oh, by the way, unlike in the Indianapolis plan where there, there was kind of a revote uh, uh, possibility, I didn't see any revote possibility in the, um, you know, in the uh, 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 approved protocol. And you have to, you know, you get to basically 2024, not 2028 to make your decision. So I think they've basically set up this protocol to make it, yes, conservatives can leave with their buildings, but we're going to make it very unlikely that that many conservative churches are actually going to be able to to get out. And so the conservative, you know, so there's going to be fewer ch- conservative churches getting out than they think, and the conservatives take essentially nothing with them um, when they leave. Although I, I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't note that the the conservatives would get a cash payment of twenty five million dollars, which is not insubstantial. <laughs> Obviously, it's a lot of money. Uh, in order to, um, yeah, you know, in order to kind of stand up their new uh, denomination, um, so they're getting something. It's not like they're they're not getting anything, but I think it shows that the institutional infrastructure, the brand, et cetera. Oh, by the way, the the conservatives. There's nothing in this protocol about the use of the the term United Methodist Church. Nothing about logos. Uh, so presumably, yeah, um, you know, presumably they're not going to be allowed to do that. They're going to have to do something totally different. And, uh, you know, I just think, again, they're leaving and they're not even really getting to leave. It's like, okay, we will, we lost, but you're going to leave and we're actually going to make it extremely hard for you to leave. And most of you are many, I don't know, most, but many of you are probably not going to be able to master the process to leave. And then we're going to totally own and control you for the rest of your church's existence. I mean, this is a terrible, terrible terrible deal as far as I'm concerned. Now, maybe, um, you know, maybe uh, they, they thought, oh, this really is the best deal they ever could have possibly gotten. But again, uh, you, uh, you know, this, this is a group that won, right? The conservatives actually won the last vote that was taken. And yet not only uh, are they the ones leaving, you know, they set up a process that basically dramatically disadvantages them during the leaving process. And I guess the last thing I would point out about this agreement, which was also the case, I think, in the Indianapolis plan, was that assuming the, at the time this agreement would be approved, it would immediately uh, put in abeyance all discipline over um, kind of LGBT issues. So the minute that this protocol is assigned, is signed basically and approved, um, it's already kind of been signed by various people, but hasn't been approved. The, med- the minute this thing is approved, the United Methodist Church becomes, in essence, an officially progressive denomination. Even though the progressive never won a single vote on anything, 
uh, and in fact lost their last vote. So again, you may actually think that the the progressive uh, stance is the right stance. I'm not saying, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not uh, again trying to like make all these you know these arguments on on substance. I'm trying to look at this specifically as a structural issue around how conservatives always find themselves outmaneuvered, even in cases where they have a lot of cards to play, even in cases where they're very strong, they don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand the implications of these these kind of agreements and these bureaucratic procedures, and they dramatically underestimate the value of institutional infrastructure. Now, again, the people who are involved in this who are conservatives in the United Methodist Church, they're probably going to tell me I'm full of it. They're going to say, you know, you don't know anything about the United Methodist Church, which, you know, it's true. I'm not an expert in United Methodism. Uh, I'm pretty good at reading business terms and contracts, um, which is the way I analyze this. Negotiate a lot of multi-million dollar contracts uh, in my day, um, it, you know. But is, is it possible that I've totally mischaracterized this? I suppose it is, you know, technically possible. But this agreement, this protocol for reconciliation and grace through separation, and I'll throw in links to the documents for both the Indianapolis plan and for this protocol, so you can read it and see them for yourselves. Um, I have to say that the, the conservatives got themselves a very bad deal. Uh, and are setting themselves up to get rolled.